Hello, everyone. This is um, Claudia Morgan, the host of the Spiritual Inspire Show. And uh, my guest uh, today is uh, Michael Sharp. Uh, Michael is a mountaineer, entrepreneur, and storyteller who lives to explore remote places around the world and to share the depth and beauty of human connection he discovers along the way. With early success as an entrepreneur at age 15 and over 20 years of global financial investment experience, Mike brings his business acumen and altruistic heart to lead and support local and international mentorship, fundraising, and educational initiatives. He and his partner in adventure, Chantal, make their base camp in Squamish, nestled in BC's Rock Coast Mountains and temperate rainforest. Mike, thank you very much for uh, coming to my show today. Thank you very much, Claudia, for, uh, for having me on the show. Um, you are uh, coming from a beautiful uh, area in, in BC and uh, also you traveled uh, all around the world, you know, challenging yourself to, to go up the mountains and uh, uh, very challenging and uh, dangerous uh, peaks. So how do you, how hard is to run a successful business and also allocate time for your passion? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I guess if I look back over the years, I've always looked at what was important to me. So I've tried to very, uh, very clearly identify my values and, uh, and, and, and what's truly important to me. So being outdoors in the mountains, when I was young, my parents would take me uh, and my sister camping and, and getting out into the mountains, getting out into nature. So that's always been something that's been very important to me growing up. And, and of course, living on the West Coast, we have access to that very readily. And so, you know, when I was looking at um, building my business and, and, you know, starting my career, uh, getting into, uh, into all of that, it was all, always very important to not lose touch with, um, with who I am, with the natural world, with, the, with kind of the mountaineering, the nature side of things. And so I guess, yeah, over time, you build it in as a practice, like anything, right? And you kind of make sure that it doesn't get forgotten about. Um, it's very easy to put, um, you know, particularly when we're focused on career or when we're younger, perhaps we're more eager to move away or move to different places to pursue different objectives and goals. But, um, but that was something that I never wanted to do. I never wanted to put nature and the mountains as something second. And so, um, yeah, so it just kind of evolved into becoming part of part of my life. I never kind of looked at my life in different silos. You know, I didn't look at career as one thing and outdoors adventure as another thing. I just looked at all as as living. And so um, so it just sort of naturally stayed as a as a prominent part of my uh, my life. Yes, I mean, nowadays, the cities are growing at a very speed uh, pace and they are taking over nature. And mm. as you said, we are so engrossed into making uh, a career and paying our bills that we forget that this connection with mother nature is, is very important. Do you still feel that these days people forget about the connecting with, uh, with their surroundings? I th yeah, I, I mean, that's a, that's a very good question. And I think it's a very profound question because I think it happens in different ways, right? We've built, if you think about what we've done here in, in North America or in the modern world, we're creating, um, a life for ourselves that is built around being comfortable, right? So we try to we try to shield ourselves from from Mother Nature, so to speak. You know, try to protect ourselves, try to build more of a comfort uh, in our life. And and so I think that can actually be kind of a dangerous thing because um, it actually takes us away from what I believe 
um, defines us as human beings from this, this, this um, notion that we've developed these high sensitivities to our natural environment and, and our ability to kind of navigate, you know, the natural environment through those sensitivities is very important. That's what we've developed over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. And so to now kind of put ourselves in a, in a situation or an environment where we, in a way, kind of, you know, uh, dull those senses. Um, I don't know that that's <laughs> the best thing for us. I think we as human beings are meant to be more plugged in. We, you know, if you think about it, we are nature at the end of the day, right? So we are part of nature. We cannot exist without nature. We are part of it. So I think by removing ourselves from it and trying to create this life of comfort, um, it actually takes us away from who we are as, uh, as human beings. Yes, I think we are afraid of uh, bugs right now, any type of bug. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're getting in, in, in nature and, uh, you know, see wildlife. Sometimes we just <laughs> right. it can hurt us. Yeah, yeah, no, it's funny because sometimes I, I see the parents kind of spraying their kids with all these chemicals to keep the bugs off. And I'm not, okay, well, that's more dangerous than you know, what you're trying to protect them against. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of interesting, this whole notion of, um, of, of separating ourselves from the natural environment these days. Yeah, I mean, you, you guys were lucky, you and Chantal, your, your wife uh, were lucky. I mean, she has the same love for, for nature and you, you travel together. I mean... 2012, um, you undertook an expedition deep in the um, Himalaya for northern uh, Nepal. Um, mm -hmm. you said that trip was a, like a spiritual journey, a journey to, to discover yourself, uh, your personal laksha? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was probably, this was in 2012. I guess 2012 was an important year for for everybody, <laughs> you know, according to the, the Mayan calendar there. But um, that was where everything changed for me. And you know, if I think about the Himalaya and Nepal, I had wanted to to go to that part of the world for as long as I can remember, uh, since I was a kid. I don't, I don't know why, but I had this very strong draw to that place on the very soul level. And so, but, you know, we like we talked about briefly about careers, sometimes things get in the way and I didn't have the funding or the money earlier on and I didn't have the time. And, and so it wasn't until I was in my early 30s that I was finally able to to go there and and Chantal and I actually it was through um, you know various synchronicities we came into contact with this one gentleman who had just come back from Nepal he had been trekking over there for 20 years and into some of the most obscure areas and one of the things when I thought about Nepal one of the things I always thought about was that I, I didn't want to do something that was too you know touristy or, or that everyone else was doing and I couldn't really figure out what it was that uh, where I wanted to go. And then when we sat down with this one friend, he um, he started showing us these pictures of this place that he had just come back from. And he said, this valley, it's called, this is back in 2011, it's called the Lost Valley of Narfu. And it was just opened up a few years before that. Before that, it was closed to the outside world for generations. And so he was showing us these, these pictures of this lost valley and... I thought, I looked at Chantal and I just thought, this is the place I meant to go to. I just knew it, you know, you know, when you just know something. And, uh, and so Chantal and I, we kind of looked at each other like it was a decision in itself. And so we, um, we started making plans to go to this, this, uh, this place. And we thought, you know, in talking to our friend, he was telling us that now that the valley had been opened up, um, it was going to be, be experiencing some unprecedented change. 
So, you know, particularly from a flood of, of, of outsiders now coming in and, um, and, and the villagers now going out and traveling more outside of the valley. So we thought, well, why don't we go there? Why don't we put together a little team of artists, a photographer, a musician, a nature artist, and we can learn and observe from the people and try and capture a moment in time before it changes too much. So that was kind of the intention that we went into into this place with. And, um, and then towards the end, I, I, I was flipping, I never forget, I was flipping through the pictures and I came across this one mountain, this, um, it, it, this, it looked like a, <laughs> it looked like a white pyramid coming out of the earth. Um, just, you know, gleaming, almost like somebody carved it, uh, this, this sheer walls of the mountain, they carved it from the top thousands of meters down to the valley bottom. And, and I remember, um, seeing it, I thought, wow, you know, as, a, as somebody who's very passionate about mountain climbing, um, I just thought, this is it. This is the mountain I'm meant to go climb. And, uh, and, and, and that's kind of, yeah, that was the mindset that we went to, um, to this Lost Valley with. So do you think that when a mountaineer and a climber prepares physically for this type of um, challenge, um, there's anything spiritual or mental practice and preparation has to do at the same time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, mountaineering is, you know, like we talked about, you have to be very plugged in to your environment. You have to have a deep respect for your environment. And, you know, you have to tune into those higher sensitivities. Um, you know, you have to develop the skill set. You have to, um, you know, understand the terrain that you're going into, making sure that you bring in the proper equipment, you know, making sure that the logistics are, there's only so many things you can figure out ahead of time, because obviously there's a whole set of unknowns, but you want to be as prepared as possible um, going in. And you also want to be able to adapt to those unknowns as they come up. So make sure that you have the, the you know, the abilities and the skill and the experience to be able to know and adapt to, to things as they arise, because mountain environments are, of course, very unpredictable. Um, but at the same time, I find mountain environments, there's a lot that makes sense about them. You know, you can be on a mountain with, you know, glaciated ice coming off and cracking and rockfall and all of these things happening around you. But somehow everything has its place. Somehow everything, you know, makes sense. You can really understand the flow of, of nature, whatever's happening there. And then sometimes when I come back from that into into the modern world, I find the modern world actually doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes. So yeah, no, so you, you, you kind of want to make sure that you're mentally and physically prepared as much as possible. And I assume that when you are there, you feel so small compared to the sheer... Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. There, there's something a, um, a Buddhist monk once told me um, about this journey towards everyone talks about this journey towards enlightenment. And, you know, he, he was telling me about this concept of freedom of view, um, being able to separate ourselves from our own view. And so I think nature being in nature or being on a mountain like that, it kind of helps with that. It's part of that process because you understand that, that you're just a very, very small part of a much larger picture and, um, and, and, and anything can happen in that one moment, right? Uh, we like to think that we can plan and you know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next month or the next year, and we have, might have an entire plan for our life. But but really, you know, it's not like that. It's all we can control or all we have some semblance of control over is the moment now 
and anything that happens in the future is is a complete unknown as much as we don't like to think about that yeah and it gives us a, a sense of humbleness mm. if, 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 yes respect nature and understand our place in, in nature absolutely yeah yeah somebody one of my um friends from the taltan nation he said uh you know the mountains don't have a respect for you so it's very important that you respect the mountains <laughs> So in the end, did you climb the mountain and did you find its name? Well, yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a bit of a story. So what happened was we got into this valley and it was about a week trek to get to this most, the most remote outpost village, uh, the village of Fu. And uh, this was back in 2012. And if you imagine this place, I mean, it was like stepping back in time. It was like stepping back into the 17th century. And, you know, the people there, they have been living at that time, they had been living the same way that they'd been living for the last 800 years. And, um, you know, in terms of their homes, what they were wearing, the way that they were, they're, they're semi-nomadic, they actually move with the seasons. Uh, the time there was no electricity, not even any toilets, um, you know, so like just this very authentic connection to, um, to their cultural heritage. And, um, and then, you know, we're up at this elevation of 14,000 feet above sea level, which is a very harsh environment. You know, these high mountain passes, um, you've got these 7,000 meter peaks all around you. And as though the peaks were almost like squeezing the life out of the, the these little villages that were there. And then the villages, yeah, I mean, they were kind of carved up the rock sides. Um, just the most mind blowing thing I think I had ever seen. And and so, you know, we're experiencing, we're taking all of this in, we're experiencing it. Um, the valley, I should mention, is also considered, um, the Tibetans call it a Bayul Valley, which is uh, Tibetan for sacred valley. And it's, it's a place where, I mean, the Dalai Lama himself has said, it's a place where the physical and spiritual realms coalesce closer together. And we could feel that. Um, I remember walking through these gates and it was like something shifted. It was like we walked into an orb of some sort where colors became clearer, uh, sharper, feelings more profound. Um, our entire way of seeing the world in some way and seeing ourselves shifted and we all felt it in different ways. Um, so that was kind of the, the mindset that we were in this, this place with. And then I spent two days um, doing this reconnaissance uh, with my two Sherpa companions to try and find this mountain. I knew it was somewhere in the valley, but I didn't know exactly where. And um, we, on the second day, we found it. Um, it was the most glorious thing. I mean, it was, no picture could do it justice. I, I, I'll never forget the moment I, I saw it. It kind of stole a beat from my heart and just, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it was um, one of the most beautiful mountains I have ever witnessed. And, um, and then, you know, as we were making preparations to, to, to go to it, to find it or to like to, to approach it, um, that's when everything started falling apart. Um, you know, we got caught in a snowstorm at 17,000 feet and, and my mule that was carrying my climbing gear took off and was two days behind us. Um, so all these things started kind of spiraling out and it, it forced me to hunker down in this little village of Fu. Um, I couldn't go forward. Um, we didn't want to go backwards, but we were kind of there and, and, and spending time there, spending days there with the people, with the villagers, um, eating with them, you know, being with them in their homes, um, 
Yeah, I mean, they were some of the most hospital pe hospitable people I'd ever met and in one of the most harshest landscapes I'd ever experienced. Um, but it got me thinking about that journey because, you know, since I was a teenager, I wanted to be there and climb the mountain, so to speak. Um, but now that part of my identity was being questioned, right? You know, it was kind of like I was forced to question, you know, why am I actually here? in the Himalaya? What am I here to do? What is, um, going back to our earlier uh, question, you know, what is actually important to me in this moment? Mm -hmm. and, and connecting with the people, um, and this one young man in particular, his name was Sanam Dorje. He had just come back uh, to Fu after seven years. He left the village when he was 14 years old, and he had just come back at that moment. Hadn't seen his parents in, in seven years, hadn't seen his village. Um, he went to go study um, in India. And so our, our paths happened to cross exactly at that moment. And so we started going on these walks together and he would share with me about the, the village and the people and his culture and Tibetan Buddhism and the Dharma. And, and, um, and, and we, we became friends over a period of days there. And, and he also started sharing with me about the plight of the, the children there and how tough it was for them to get education, you know, as young as, six or seven years old, they would have to start working, you know, hard life in the fields. Um, a lot of the girls at that time, by the time they were 15, 16 years old, they would have to get married, um, you know, start having kids of their own. So just a very different way. And um, for anyone to get any sort of education beyond the village, it was very, very difficult. So again, it kind of brought a lot into, um, into perspective and just had me thinking, you know, why am I so worried or why do I have such anxiety around this mountain, something or climbing this mountain, something that, you know, really doesn't necessarily matter in the grand scheme of things. And uh, so these were kind of all the thoughts that were swimming around in my head for, for several days while we were there. So in other words, there are signs that you took in consideration that might be something you should look deeper, don't go closer, because that's not for you to do, climb that mountain at that particular time. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, I would say that's very accurate. It's, it was almost like everything um, inside of me was still wanting to go forward, but everything outside of me was kind of guiding me in a different direction and a direction I didn't know where. Um, but as you said, like those subtle signs, those subtle sort of signals were kind of guiding me no, no, come down this way. And it, almost like doorways opening up, right? And it was almost guiding me to walk through those doorways. And, um, and I, I just kind of, at the end, I just sort of chose to trust in those external signs, um, what was happening there. And, and that was all I could do. I, I didn't want to force, you know, going forward to the mountain. I, I chose to trust in those um, evolving little signs that, um, that were kind of opening those doorways. Yeah, I mean, wise decision. I mean, to me, I think the lesson was for you wasn't into climbing the, the mountain in as much as meeting these people, sharing their life, their experiences, uh, you know, um, acquainting uh, that uh, young gentleman who came back from India. And that mm. was the, the true experience rather than climbing mm. the, the mountain, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and looking back, I can say that with 100% certainty. Um, but at the time, <laughs> it 
it was very difficult to try and reconcile that. And, you know, you imagine this, uh, this objective that you've had for, you know, for 15, over 15 years, and then, you know, suddenly it's crushed on the doorstep, um, you know, when it's so close and, and, uh, and trying to make sense of that. And yeah, but at the same time, yeah, you're right. It, it, looking back on it, it was not about climbing the mountain. The mountain was just guiding me to a much deeper experience. Yes, and, and recently one of my um, guests on Spiritual Inspired told me that <clears throat> I have to look at or to look at my or feel my gut feeling like where I have to be, nor where I want to be. There are two different mm. things. Mm. So I should go where I have to be because that's my purpose, that's my meaning. And also the next question is if I get there, what do I have to do? So I think mm. questions which we all have to, to ask ourselves. Those are great questions. Yeah. And I think it's something to always sort of tap into or try and assess um, as we go, because, you know, things change, right? Even our, our, the lens at which we look at something with changes over time, over the years. And there's a, uh, there's a Tibetan word uh, called bardo. I don't know if you know this word, but uh, it, it, it's kind of the transit. It means transition, transitionary space. Um, and the Tibetans, we know they believe in reincarnation uh, from lifetime to lifetime. But something that's not often talked about as much is they actually believe in reincarnation within one lifetime. So many incarnations within one lifetime. And the bardo is the place where we enter and decide, um, you know, what aspects of our past do we want to carry forward into the future, into this next incarnation? And what aspects of our past no longer serve us you know do we want to let go mm. of so um i think that was kind of you know that's kind of, kind of something very important to keep in mind and that was what was happening to me in the mountains at that point i was i think i was literally going through this this bardo where i part of me had effectively died on the mountain so to speak and part of me was being reborn into what i didn't know but again it's kind of that's part of the beauty of of the experience right yeah, you're having a plant medicine experience without the plant medicine. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you mentioned that you had that powerful draw to Nepal, to Tibet. Uh, mm. And usually these come to us from a previous life, as, as also we just discussed that. Have you tried to, to go through an um, experience with uh, someone who can guide you uh, through any particular uh, practice? to do a regression and see if that's the case, if you were a mountaineer or you live in that part of the world in a previous uh, life? Yeah, there, there have been, um, I haven't gone through, so to speak, like a formal um, you know, <laughs> thing like that, but, but there are enough indicators and, um, and enough of those little signs to, to, to basically make me believe that that is the case. Um, there's very strong karmic threads um, attaching me to, to that area, to that place, and uh, and that's actually what happened when we, when I walked around, when I walked away from the mountain, uh, we decided to go to this other little village called Nar, and uh, and there's only two main villages in this entire valley, and Fu is one, Nar is the other, and had I climbed the mountain, I would not have had time to go to this other little village, and and so we thought, okay, well now we've got some extra time, let's go there, check it out, and so we get there and we catch wind that there's this little stone school in the village and everything I had just learned, everything I had just observed about the kids, you know, having access to the outside education, uh, what Sanam Dorje, this young man had told me uh, about the difficulties 
And, and then I learned about this little stone school. So I thought, well, let's go check it out. And so we, um, we get there and the courtyard, there's like kind of an open courtyard and the kids had brought the benches out so that they could be in the light and the warmth of the sun. There's no electricity. It's very dark and cold in the actual rooms. And the school itself, I mean, maybe it scratched the surface of grade one, but at the front of the class was this seven-year-old girl uh, teaching English numbers to this group of kids ranging from about three to seven years old. And, you know, all of us were kind of taken a little bit aback, like, why is there a seven-year-old girl teaching English numbers, <laughs> you know, to this group of kids here? And something about her seemed strangely familial, um, like there was a karmic connection between us. Uh, I mean, we'd seen hundreds of kids up until that point, and, but for some reason, there was something markedly different about her. And so, um, so we just kind of observed what was happening there. And we actually found the teacher. He was kind of looming in the background. And, and he came from a very different part of Nepal, two weeks away. He was very far from his people and his village. And, and he kind of expressed to us that he had no desire. He had felt like he'd been banished to the end of the earth. Um, and so it wasn't long, though, before the kids, they caught sight of the guitar that was slung over our, you know, our team member's shoulder, Michael's shoulder. And, uh, and they had never seen a guitar before, let alone heard one. So, um, so they kind of expressed some interest And Michael, he's a bit of an entertainer. He went up there and started teaching them this jazzed up rendition of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Um, and the kids, of course, they got right into it and started dancing and singing. And the teacher himself, he got a little bit motivated. He brought out this Nepali drum. And then he wanted each of the kids to dance one at a time in front of us. And he started with this little girl who was so confident in teaching these English numbers before um, he said, you know, dance now in front of these people. And, and you could see her, she was just, um, it was like she was just crumbling from the inside and, and just petrified and, and almost internally crying. And, and we were looking on like, okay, this is a little bit awkward and, and uncomfortable and weird. And, and um, anyway, Chantal couldn't take it. And she marched up there next to this little girl and just started doing her best impression of a traditional Nepali dance. She didn't know how to do a traditional Nepali dance, but she was just waving her arms. And, and all of a sudden the little girl, her, her gaze shifted away from everybody else watching and onto Chantal and the two of them, their eyes locked and they just started dancing together as though they were in their own little world. Um, it, actually, it actually almost felt like time itself uh, had ceased to move in that moment. And it was such a beautiful scene, the 7,000 meter peaks in behind and yeah, and the two of them. Um, and then, so after that, the, the, the kids, they found where we were staying and, um, and this little girl, she came running in and just leaped into Chantal's arms. Chantal told me afterwards that it was the biggest, like the most heart to heart felt hug that she had ever received from a child. And, and the little, the little girl, she, she leaped into my arms and, um, and the force at which, you know, hit me. I mean, not the force of her physically, but just the force of the love that just came at me. Um, it was like that half a second realization that this is the reason why I'm not climbing the mountain. Um, and then her friends rushed in and a lot of them, they were asking for candy and chocolate because they're seeing some truckers now bringing that in. And when they found out we didn't have any, they kind of backed off. And, and then this little girl came back and she pulled out from her sweater 
this little card with English words on it. And she just kind of motioned to Chantal um, to speak and teach her these English words. And that's when Chantal and I, that's when we kind of looked at each other like, okay, there's this little girl in this 14,000 foot, you know, in elevation village. Materially, they have very little survival out here. Um, and all she wants is to learn. And, and so that's when we started asking the questions, like what happens to a little girl like this who wants to have an education beyond her village education? And, and you know, and what are her parents' plans for her? And, and so we started asking all these, we asked her, what's her name? Her, she said, her name is Karma. And, um, and then we, uh, we asked her how old she is. She said seven. And, um, and anyway, we were able to find out where she lived. And, and she said, um, you know, because we wanted to have a, have a conversation with her parents. And, and her father was away. He was two days away uh, with the yaks. Um, but the mother, she was working in the fields and she was coming home that evening. And so she wasn't there when we got to the house. But um, this little stone house, if you can imagine, with, a, you know, one room, um, a little dung field stove in the middle, and, um, and Karma brought us in and she put out these yak wool mats for us to sit on and, and started getting the kettle ready with the water for the tea and got the fire going. And, um, and she was doing all this while she was taking care of her three-year-old sister. And I, I just, I was kind of looking in awe at this whole scene, like this would not happen, I don't think in North America, the seven-year-old girl, you know. Um, and so her mom came, finally came home and, and just a very graceful, beautiful woman um, very hard, like very weathered from the elements and hard, hard work in the, in the field. Um, but, uh, but just very graceful in her, in her movements. And, and first thing she, she gave us tea and, and these little yak um, milk crackers. And, and so we had this broken through broken transla translation, this conversation, and, and we were able to discover that for them, education for their girls is the biggest blessing and hope that they could ever wish for. Um, but it's very difficult because they, they, there's no way that the, the people up there can afford the, the education for their girls. So, um, so then we asked Karma, is this something that you would like? And Karma said, yes, she would very much like to study. And, and so we said, okay, well, um, Chantal and I, we said, well, we will work with your parents and find the best solution we can um, for you. And, and then we left the village and had no idea what we were going to do and or find and and we knew that the school had to be some sort of a um uh well nepal is is kind of mostly hindu especially in the urban centers whereas in the mountains they're they're tibetan buddhist so culturally very different um and in the most of nepal they operate on the caste system mm -hmm. so we knew that if karma was placed in any government school or any school that didn't cater to her cultural ethnicity um that there would be risk for cult or uh, racial discrimination. So, um, so we knew that it had to be, you know, aligned with, with her culture and, and a safe sort of boarding school. And so we, um, yeah, so we, we got to Kathmandu, we couldn't find anything there. Um, we got back to, um, to, to Canada and uh, we kept searching oh, for, a, for a month we were searching and um, almost losing hope. And then one day up pops this, uh, this school uh, it's called Sri Mangaldip SMD, school for Himalayan children. They called the lost, uh, the lost children of the Himalaya because they're in these such remote pockets that they just fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and pictures of the kids similar to, to where karma comes from. And, and so we thought this is perfect. We wrote the school. Um, we said, you know, okay, we, we, who founded this school? We, we found out that it was founded by this Tibetan Lama who had fled Tibet in the 50s. And, um, and we wrote to the school at once and the school director wrote back 
and she said, you know, thank you for, for sharing. And, you know, sounds like a beautiful uh, little student. And, but I have to tell you that we have 500 kids at the school right now. We're busting at the seams. We have 400 kids on the wait list. We have kids being dropped off on our doorsteps that we have to turn away. And because of all of this, there's only one person who can choose to admit new kids into the school. And that is the, this 80 plus year old founder, this Tibetan Lama. But then she said, you know, I remember reading the note and I felt like I was falling down this pit of despair or something. You know, why are there so many barriers stacked against this one little girl who just wants to study? And, but then she said, um, you know, Chantal had included our address in the email signature and, she, and the school director said, well, <clears throat> I see that you are in this place called Vancouver, Canada. Um, you may be interested to know that the founder, this Tibetan Lama happens to be recovering from an illness right now at his monastery in Richmond, which was a 25 minute drive from our home at that time. So, I mean, and, and so that kind of opened up this whole, you know, eight year, this is back in 2012. And so over the next eight years, Karma was able to get into the school and then her little sister Pemba. And so we've been kind of developing this whole relationship with them and their family. And we've been going back every year, uh, every eight to 10 months and, and just, you know, growing that relationship, growing those experiences together. And, and some of the most fulfilling and meaningful experiences of my life. And, and so, um, you know, so going back to your question about past lives and past sort of karmic threads, I mean, I have no doubt that there were some very strong karmic connections connecting all of us um, in some ways over lifetimes. And it was, the, the signs were there. It was almost like the mountain was guiding me back mm you know, and, 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 and just honoring those connections has been one of the biggest things that I've learned. Yeah, such a beautiful story. And these kids in this part of the world uh, are always more mature than their age, like in India or in Eastern Europe, uh, because they have so much hardness in, in their life. Um, mm. So my next question to you is, they, they go through so much, um, again, hardship, and they don't have toys. They don't have the facilities of what our kids have in, in the West uh, part of the world. But they are happy. They are so joyful. They are so appreciative of what they have. Why do you think this is the case? Why? Mm, yeah, that's, uh, yeah that, that's an interesting point. I, I, I think a lot of it comes down to... Um, well, the values that they're instilled with over time, right? And, and whether that comes from their parents or whether it comes from, um, you know, kind of that Tibetan Buddhist Dharma, maybe it's a combination of both. But um, there's one example where I remember we were, um, we were at this, uh, this was after the 2015 earthquakes and we went there for a little family vacation together. And we went to this, um, this museum um, where the father with the father and, and the two girls, Karma and Pemba. And I remember there was this diorama of, um, of like a traditional Tibetan, you know, mountain house. And, and their father, Sanam, he started taking pictures on his flip phone of this scene. And, and I thought, wow, you know, what are you, what's going on here? Why are you taking pictures of this particular diorama? And he just turned to me and he said, my home. And I, I just, it kind of struck me as, um, I don't know, in a very profound way. I just, I mean, can you imagine seeing your home in a museum as though it was something perhaps of the past, you know, and, and I, I just, the whole thing kind of struck me as odd. Um, 
But then, you know, what was happening was the two girls, Carmen Pemba, they, they went over to this little, you know, without prompting, they went over to this little um, gompa, this little Tibetan shrine, and they started doing this mantra. Um, the mantra was uh, Namo Buddhaya, Namo Dharmaya, Namo Sangaya, which translates to um, homage to my higher self, homage to, um, you know, the, uh, the, the wisdom, the wisdom that's been accumulated over time, what's come before, and homage to the interconnectedness of all things, my community. And, and that's kind of the level of mindfulness that they're operating from. So I'm just thinking, you know, to your question, their worldview, like their, their, the way that they assess their world is totally, is being cultivated totally different than, for example, how we're doing it in the West here, where in the West, it's all about, um, you know, we have to focus almost on the future, right? We have to focus on, okay, what's the goal? We have to, you know, get into school. We have to do well at school so we can get a university and then do well at university so we can get a good job. And, and meanwhile, you've got parents who are posting pictures of their kids on Instagram and all these things. So, you know, maybe the other parents are trying to f- make sure that their kids can keep up to, you know, all the other pictures. I mean, it's just kind of crazy if you think about it. Um, so again, just the way that we are cultivating children in the different and there's pluses and minuses to, to both, right? But it's just, it's just a different way. Um, but I did realize the more time I spent in Nepal and with Karma and Pemba and their family, the more I could s- start to realize some of these differences, kind of like, you know, they celebrated community, whereas over here we typically celebrate more individualism, um, you know, more of the individual. Um, we celebrate more about, um, you know, kind of achievement, right? Whereas they are celebrating more about, you know, uh, like letting go almost. Um, we're trying to accumulate material wealth. You know, they're trying to, um, you know, share more. So it's just, I think naturally there's going to be these different pathways that, 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 uh, that open up. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very complex world that we live in. And, um, and you need, I guess we need some of them, you know, we, we need elements of both, right. <laughs> to, to kind of make, make things happen, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's fascinating to kind of, you know, c- c- contrast them to, uh, to each other. Yeah. So, so thank you for everything you, you've been doing for uh, that community in, in that part of the world. And we'll have links for those who want to, to donate to, um, to this cause and, uh, you know, have uh, more children um, be educated and get more teachers maybe in that part of the, the world and uh, for kids to not to travel but have someone who can explain to them the traditions and uh, teach them the, the basics mm-hmm. yeah yeah just kind of that's part of the reason why i wrote the book too was just to open kind of a, a worldview into another place and, and just another not only a, another culture but also a place within ourselves right coming from back to the heart coming sort of heart-centric again um, I think, you know, everything that we're talking about, listening to those little signs, um, you mentioned listening to your gut, um, you know, coming, kind of tuning into those, you know, deeper signs um, within our bodies and um, not so much living in our, in our mind or in our head, but, um, but kind of, again, tapping into those deeper sense, senses, uh, which have developed and evolved over thousands of years. That's what's kind of allowed us to flourish um, and survive. 
And so I think it's it, it kind of it's about kind of again tapping into that that sort of heart centric way of of being again. Yeah, um, I have to, to apologize. I forgot to mention uh, in the introduction that you are the author of a story of uh, karma uh, based on on this trip in uh, in Himalayas in 2012. I know if you have the, the book nearby to to show it to us. If not, I'll, I'll put a link to to the book on on Amazon for sure. Okay, funny enough, I don't have a copy on me, but. <laughs> But yes, the link. Uh, yeah, we can certainly uh, give people the links to to find it. And and you started your trip in in Kathmandu, and I'd like to um, ask you about that um, city. I mean, it used to be a you know a, a commercial um, hub, and uh, how it is right now is that influx of tourists uh, didn't improve in any way. That the infrastructure, the the, the living. Um, meanings of uh, means of, of the, the people living there or what what exactly is happening from from the book it means it looks like it's not a good place to to live in in Kathmandu itself yeah uh, yeah so Kathmandu in the Kathmandu valley there's um the actually there's well, I guess like what's happening everywhere there's kind of this mass um urban migration right so a lot of people leaving their higher you know villages um, coming down to the the valley, coming down to the capital city of Kathmandu, to try and make a better life for themselves and um, and be in the city and and um, that's what Sonam Dorje back in Fu when we were doing our daily walks. Um, one of the things he mentioned to me is that anyone who was able to leave the village would leave the village. Um, so again, being closer to to things like you know conveniences and and healthcare and and things like that, having electricity. So it's drawing a lot of people to the valley. Um, Nepal is still a third world country. So again, infrastructure wise, it doesn't have a lot um, in terms of what we would have over here. Um, even things like, um, well, pollution is a humongous problem over there. For the, I think Kathmandu, it was rated as the most um, polluted city by air pollution in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, just um, things like that, challenges like that. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, infrastructure-wise, it's very hard to maneuver around. Um, so again, if you're like a business owner or own a shop or something like that, to try and get around to different parts of the city, it's very difficult. Um, typically, just yeah, massively congested. And then Nepal itself has been hit with um, just multiple things every year, every couple of years. It just keeps getting hammered with something. So. You know, as I mentioned in 2015, it had these earthquakes that killed thousands of people, displaced hundreds of thousands of people. And um, and then on the back of that, they had this fuel crisis because um, they never had a constitution. And, and so um, India put up this or they kind of sanctioned this blockade and Nepal being a landlocked country, it, it relies on a lot of imports from India, everything from fuel to medicines and, and, and food and and so, um, so for for several weeks there was this blockade there that was stopping the inflow of, of of stuff coming in, and so there was no fuel. So then they had to start chopping down trees around the city, already sort of sparsely um, forested areas around the city. And then they started chopping down all the trees to to create fuel and and things like that. And uh, yeah, and and, and so um, it's just every few years it just seems to be hit with some sort of I don't know. Um, new challenge of some sort. Um, and so I think, you know, and then not to mention, yeah, the healthcare is, is, um, is kind of lacking, you know, with COVID very rampant now through 
through the city, um, they've actually stopped testing people because the government actually started charging the people if they wanted to test themselves, they would have to pay for it. And of course, the people couldn't afford to test, so they stopped testing altogether. Um, so, you know, you know now um, COVID's, they have no idea like how many cases there are, but it's, it's running rampant, I'm, I'm told. So, yeah, it's just a very, um, it's just a very different life there. Um, you know, again, a lot of dichotomies, right? Because very beautiful people, you know, people are very strong, they're hardworking, they have very strong wills, they've fought through all this stuff, and they continue to, to survive and thrive in their own ways. And, and, um, and, and we've developed some very deep relationships, some very, you know, deep friendships with, uh, with the Nepali people. So, so again, it, it's just, yeah, they're, they're being hit with these challenges. And at the same time, they're just very resilient, very, um, um, yeah, just very genuine and good people. Yeah. It, yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> it's sad that uh, they cannot get um, better life and uh, improvements based on again how much tourists they have, the the, the beauty of their landscape and uh, uh, everything else happening around them. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, and that that was part of the reason. Um, you know, if I go back to to twenty twelve when we when we first met Karma. And Pemba, you know, one of the intentions that, or the main intention that, that I had at that time was just to help give these two little girls more choice in the world, right? So, and to, to understand what the world is about. So if they want to make a life for themselves in their village, then that's fine, but it should be on their own terms. And so, you know, I, I wanted to help them understand, okay, what is Kathmandu? Uh, and what is it like there? And, and, and what is the rest of the world like? So we... Um, we actually went back, we took them back to their village in 2017 and we had a meeting with their parents and their family and, and talking about, you know, the future for the girls. And, and, and we had talked about the possibility of them doing a cultural and education exchange uh, to Canada to again, seeing this part of the world and, and what is this part of the world like? And, and so her parent, their parents, um, um, they really would have, they really, they said they really would like that. And, um, and so we thought, okay, well, we'll try and make it happen. Um, I said, I can't guarantee this because we knew that it was almost impossible to get visas. Uh, we'd have to get them on student visa, but we knew that all the student visas for, for Canada were going through, or all the visas for Canada were going through India. And in India, I was told that they process 30 to 40,000 uh, applications per month. Um, so there's no way physically they can look at every, so most of the applications are actually just declined off the bat uh, for the flimsiest of reasons. So anyway, it took a small miracle for us to, uh, to, to be able to bring the girls over. Eventually, we were able to get the girls' visas to come over here. And, um, and they lived with us for a, for a year. Um, I mean, Chantal and I, we became kind of parents overnight. <laughs> and, and, uh, but, you know, it was amazing just to see their lenses, you know, having come from the village, then Kathmandu, then coming to a place like North America, and and the lenses at which they were looking at everything with, um, you know, the things that they found fascinating. Um, for example, well, they found the ocean fascinating. First of all, I mean, they'd never seen the ocean before, being in a growing up in a landlocked country, and um, and then they just became immediately almost part of the household. Uh, you know, they had never seen like a washer dryer and some of these electronic things, but but right away they it was it wasn't as though. Um, they were, they're not used to having chores, right? They just, they used to be part of the, the house, so to speak. So, you know, they were cleaning their own things and doing their, washing their own clothes and all that stuff right away as soon as they learned how to use some of the, 
the gadgets and and yeah i remember one time um i was cooking and and pemba she 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 came up to me and she wanted to help and i said oh pemba you know you don't have to help me cook today you can you know go and um you know do some art or play or whatever you want to do and and she said oh she said why why don't you want me to cook with you um, and I thought, you know what? Okay. Like just, yeah, come in here. Like, let's make this. So again, even going back to simple things like that, I mean, for them, it's about the process of not only eating together, but, but the entire process of preparing the meal together is, is an experience. So um, yeah. So, you know, again, just different worlds coming together. And I think that's really what our world is made up of. And, and the more we can kind of see things through different lenses, the more we can not only understand others, but, but I, like to your point, we can actually understand ourselves better. Yeah, beautiful. Um, and I watched the uh, video when you launched uh, the book in uh, NBC. Uh, mm-hmm. I can remember if it was in uh, Squamish or somewhere else. Uh, but I saw a Buddhist monk there offering you um, a gift. How it was or how it felt to, to be embraced by the Buddhist community? Oh, I, that, that moment put me into tears. I, I was supposed to do a book reading right after that moment and, and I was... Uh, I was just I had tears coming out when I was trying to do the read the book, but um, but it, it's been very yeah it's been very beautiful. I mean, you know, going back to your question about past lives, I, I don't know what it is, but for some reason, the monks and I we just have this natural connection. You know, Chantal will will know. I mean, she'll she'll hear me from the other side of the street. You know, if I get in front of uh, you know a few monks and, and we start laughing and, and talking and she's like oh there Mike you know there he goes again he's met some new monks and, and so um, so yeah I, you know it, it's um it's just been a very beautiful experience and, and very meaningful experience to be um, kind of brought into I guess um, their family so to speak and, and and even for Karma and Pemba's family to to bring us into their family has been just a very a very meaningful um, experience, you know, probably the most meaningful experience of my life. And, and, um, and yeah, I never thought that, you know, it would start with going to try and climb this mountain and, and suddenly, you know, it takes me on this whole eight, nine year journey. So it, it changes my entire trajectory of my life and uh, as well as the lives of karma and Pemba and, and others. So um, yeah, it, it's uh I, I think, yeah, that, that human connection, right, is just, um, is, is why we're here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot to be learned from, from just connecting on the, on the depths of, of, um, of that basis, yeah. Nice. You're my second Beclair Mountaineer guest. So the other one was Derek Laudermilk. He climbed um, three volcanoes in, in Bali in 18 hours. Oh, wow, yeah. What is your next challenge? Something similar or in what part of the world? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, um, my relationship with mountains has changed over the years. You know, when I was younger, it was much more intense. It was all about, you know, the experience of, of getting up there to the summit and, and just challenging myself and all of that. And, and that's still somewhat important. But, but now I just love getting out. I just love being in nature. I just, I don't, it's, for me, it's not, I don't need to get to the top of the summit. I mean, of course, I still have that kind of objective when I go and climb a mountain, but, but it's not really about that anymore. And it's just about kind of being in that environment and just, you know, again, experiencing that heightened sensitivity. If I'm with, depending on who I'm with, um, if I'm with my friends out there, it's about experiencing it together 
And uh, in fact, my being with my friends out there is more important than actually climbing to the top of anything, right? So um, yeah, so my relationship with the mountains has kind of changed over time. And, and I still love, I mean, there's so many mountains just in our own backyard that I love to, to play around on. And, um, and I'd love to go back to the Himalaya and perhaps climb something there one day. But for me, it's about getting back to the Himalayas now so I can see the, the two girls, Carmen, Pemba and their family. Um, and it's not, I'm not, you know, the mountain is not really the thing that's driving me anymore. It's, um, it's a part of me, but it's not, you know, the driving force. Yeah, and maybe next time when you are in the, the wilderness of the mountain and the, the solitude of the mountain, you will find Shambhala. I never know. Yeah, yeah, who knows, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, 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 I think it's, um, well, I think it does bring us closer to Shambhala to be in the mountain. But I think Shambhala is that, um, I think it's that internal space as much as it is the external space. Yes, indeed. <laughs> We are uh, close to the end of the interview. Any final thoughts? Uh, just, uh, Claudio, I just say um, thank you for having me on the show. And I, and I hope people enjoy the book, A Story of Karma. Again, one of the things I hope they can take away from it is just, well, first of all, in this time of COVID where we can't travel, maybe it's a chance to go to, you know, to this uh, remote valley, the mountains, the Himalaya, this magical place. Um, but deeper than that, I think it's, it's important to, uh, I hope that they experience some of what I experienced in terms of um, finding these deep love and connection and joy through the pages. Um, so uh, hopefully people, people enjoy that and find uh, some measure of that. Yeah, thank you. Indeed, most of us can reach those um, peaks only through reading or through our imagination. So that's another window to, to look through at these yes. new cultures. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you so much. New cultures, not new cultures, ancient cultures. Yes. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if people, I don't know if we'll include the website, but if people would like to learn more, um, they can visit my website, uh, michaelshaw.com. So it's just uh, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-S-C-H-A-U-C-H.com. If they'd like to learn more about the, um, the school in Nepal uh, that supports the Himalayan children, it's just um, himalayanchildren.org. Yes, we'll, we'll add these uh, links uh, for sure. And um, for my um, viewers, thank you for, for watching. Uh, like it, share it. Um, don't forget, you can support me on uh, patreon.com slash Claudio Murgan. And you can grab uh, my first book for free, The Decadence of Our Souls, by visiting uh, my uh, website, claudiumurgan.com. Until next time, love and gratitude.